Well, if you have your Bibles to James 1, you can keep it there or turn to it. I must say this past week, um, I, I, it was sort of a good news, bad news experience for me. I, um, uh, as you know, some of you know, uh, I, I do row with the Carnegie, like I, rowing in broadly speaking, but I get in a boat and I, I hold on to an oar. And um, the Learn to Row group starts every fall. Last weekend they had their uh, weekend camp, so to speak, and I helped out this week. Uh, by rowing with them, and so it's one of the first times they're in the boat, and I was so excited. There were three Stonehill people that were in the Learn to Row program. But then I started to think about, I wonder if I'm doing better at getting people to row than read the Bible, or whatever. But next year you can sign up. You can join me. Last week we looked at James 1. James is writing to a group of believers that are under trial. They have been scattered because of persecution. They are Jewish believers under siege. They've had to pick up out of Jerusalem and Judea, and now they're spread out over different parts of the Roman Empire, and they're not doing well. They're suffering. And James is deeply concerned that in the middle of their suffering, they are going to be uh, pulled away from following Jesus Christ fully. They're going to be pulled away and, 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 and be tempted to cut corners in their obedience to Christ. And James is appealing to them to understand their trials the way God sees them. Last week we saw the, the different resources that God gives us in the midst of trials. Number one, we can understand that God has good purposes in our difficulties to make us more like Christ. We also saw that James appeals to us and says, you can, uh, you, if you're having trouble seeing trials from God's perspective, pray for wisdom that God would help you see your problems according to God's perspective. James also reminded his, his readers that those who oppress you, God will deal with them. And even if you're economically deprived and are experiencing economic hardship or other, some other hardship from powerful people in charge, one day you're going to be exalted. One day you will be ruling and reigning in that future kingdom. And lastly, James says, remember... That anyone, any follower of Jesus who learns to persevere just a little bit more is going to receive, receive a crown of life. I think a life that is more rich in this life, but a commendation in the next for faithful service to Christ under pressure. And then, of course, in light of those resources, if we hold on to those resources, we can learn to begin to rejoice a little bit more in the midst of our suffering. Well, James continues, this is the prologue, the first 18 verses of chapter 1 are the prologue, the introduction to his book, and he wants to add a few more uh, sort of uh, helpful understandings of trials for us in verses 13 through 18 in chapter 1. And what he attempts to do, I believe, in this section is he wants to give us, show us two dangers that we face in the midst of trials, but also... Two provisions 
in the, in the midst of trials. Two, in some sense, safeguards in the midst of trials. Two ways to help us stand up. So let's, with the power of negative thinking, talk about the threats. The threats in your walk with Christ when you are under trial. Threat number one, you see it right in verse 13. One of the things that can happen to us in the midst of our difficulties is we can, we can be tempted to blame God and lose sight of God's goodness under trial. Notice what James says here in verse 13. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, what's hard about this text is that the the word trial and temptation are all very similar words. And how do you distinguish that? So God allows trials into our lives, but then it's very clear that James says God never tempts us. Well, you say, what's the difference? Well, I think the way to understand this is God allows trials, God allows difficulties, but never with an aim to tempt you or lure you into sin. When God allows difficulties in your life, it's not to harm you, it's to build you up. It's it's not to destroy you and and lead you into sin. It's designed to help you learn to be more like Jesus, to have perseverance and endurance and character. And yet, I think if we were honest, when we face difficulties, when we face trials... And now in the midst of those difficulties, temptation to sin maybe becomes exacerbated, so to speak, to take a shortcut from God's word or to try to find hope and help and, and solace in something other than Christ in the midst of our difficulties. We all, I think if we're honest, sometimes want to shake our fist at God and said, you did this to me. You're the problem, God. And we begin to doubt his goodness and blame him for not only our difficulties, but blame him for the temptations that we have succumbed to. That's the threat, I think, that we have. And of course, this strategy to lure us away from God in the midst of trials is is old. You go back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve were in this perfect garden, you remember when, when the tempter comes to Adam and Eve, and the first thing out of his mouth, he says, did God say you couldn't eat from any of the trees? Right? Diminish the goodness of God. What did God say to Adam and Eve? You can eat from all of them except one. And Satan begin, begins to tempt you know, Adam and Eve by saying, did God say you couldn't eat from any of the trees? And then when... Eve responds to the tempter, and, 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 then, and, then, and then, you know, she says, well, you know, if we eat of the fruit of this one tree, we're going to die. And, and the tempter goes, you're not going to die. The reason God doesn't want you to eat from that tree is, is that if you eat from that tree, you'll become like God. In other words, God is a cosmic killjoy. That's the temptation. God doesn't have your best interest at heart. God isn't good. God doesn't care for you. Because if he did care for you, you wouldn't be suffering like you are. And if he really loved you, he wouldn't put these difficulties in that have made temptation to sin more attractive to you. 
James is trying to disabuse his readers from coming to that conclusion. But the reality is, I've met most believers that talk openly about the difficulties they face under trial and the difficulties they face in the midst of temptation are, are very prone to blame God and to begin to doubt the goodness of God, particularly under trial. And we have to be ready for that threat. We have to prepare ourselves. I understand it may feel that way to you under trial. It may feel that way that God doesn't care because these difficulties continue. It may feel that way because the exacerbated temptation to sin under trial seems greater. You may feel that way, but it's not true. I was thinking about... um, some of my favorite coaches, my favorite music teachers, um, my favorite uh, te- you know, teachers in school, music teachers, athletic coaches. I'll, I'll tell you this, you know, there were some teachers that, that were a lot of fun in the classroom. Easy A's. We just joked around, we didn't learn much. Oh, it was kind of fun at the time because we thought, well, it's an easy A, but... didn't learn anything. I had had a couple of coaches that basically it was the most fun I ever had playing a sport and yet we were a disaster because it was too fun. Because he didn't work us. Or a music teacher who lets you play the same awful way week after week and tell you how great you are. You know the coaches you like. You know the teachers you like. You know the music instructors you like were not the ones that just said, hey, do whatever you want. Or were the teachers? Yes, they had to be loving. They couldn't be abusive. They were loving, but they were firm. They were hard. They were difficult. They made you work. They made you suffer. And you learned something. You became a better trumpet player. When Jack Pinto taught me back in Miami, Florida for seven years. But he didn't help me be a better trumpet player because he let me play any way I wanted. One day he told me, Have you ever played the trumpet before, Troxel? That's awful. Play it again. Played it again, still bad. Play it again. Then he played it with me. It sounded better because he was playing with me. He worked me. He made me suffer. I played so hard for a couple of weeks before a contest, my lips were bleeding after practice. But I love Jack Pinto. Because he made me a better player. And the teachers that were tough, the teachers that were hard, the, the coaches that were tough, you look back on it and you value them. And that's the way it is with God. He is never attempting to ruin your life. He's never attempting to lure you into sin. He's never attempting to crush you by allowing these trials into your life. That's not who he is. And we need to be ready to withstand that threat, that thought, particularly when we're under trial and particularly in the midst of the trial, temptation to sin is exacerbated. It never comes from him. That's the first threat. The second threat, and again, I would have to say that all of these points sort of work together. I have to kind of divvy them up, but they all work together. But the second threat here is that we will be tempted to underestimate the power and destructiveness of sin when we're under trial. 
we will be tempted to underestimate the power and destructiveness of sin under trial. Notice verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There's a pattern here I want you to see, and then I need to make a few other uh, sort of comments so we can rightly understand that. There's a, there's a pattern here. God is not the author of our sin. God is not driving us into sin. We, we fall into sin because of our desires, James says. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We have desires in our heart that are, that are, that are going to pull us away from obedience to Christ. Now, in the text, uh, you know, a lot of commentators, if you read a commentary, will say these are evil desires. I would suggest that the word desire in context can be a good or a bad desire, and either way, those desires can pull you away from Christ. A bad desire, obviously, can lead you into sin, but even a good desire can lead you into sin. If you have a good desire that's not sinful of itself, but that desire is too high up in your priority life, you will sin, all right? I still remember I um, was taking a class with uh, CCEF at Westminster Seminary. I was t- taking an online class. I was living overseas at the time, David Pallison, Dynamics of, the, uh, of Change, and they told us to pick some desire in our life that was small, a sin problem in our life, and try to work on it with the, the, the teaching that we're giving, the model of change. So I picked for my sinful problem and I could have there was a lot to choose from honestly but what I picked is is I had a very uh, going to the airport with my family had become a major problem because we had two different perspectives on when to get to the airport I was scarred younger in my life we almost missed a flight and I personally wanted to get to the airport the night before certainly three hours before my family hated to be in the airport. I kind of liked it. You sit there, you read, you know, the announcements that go on and on. It, it, it soothed my soul. But they hated it. They wanted to get to the airport at the very last minute, run through security, run to the gate, and be the last people on the plane as the cabin door closed. This caused some problems. And so we were flying a lot back then. Overseas flights, expensive flights, you don't want to miss. And it was a battle. Even if I didn't say a sinful word out loud, my whole family knew I was boiling inside. Boy, I was mad at them. And it did weird things to mine. Now, again, is it wrong to want to be early to an air? That's not a sin. Okay, that's not the 11th commandment. Come early to an airport. But that desire became like the number one desire on the day we went to the airport. Becoming like Jesus Christ, (laughs) that's not the number one desire in my heart. To, to, To show patience and love to my family who clearly has the wrong idea about how to go to the airport, not in my life. So I had to work on this. I had to work on making sure that the desire to get to the airport on time wasn't the one main desire of my life. I had to put it back down so it was a lot lower. 
Well, you can go wrong with a good desire that's disordered or a bad desire that's leading you directly into sin. Notice interesting the pattern here. It says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin. There's a sense in which a desire may come into your mind, come into your heart. But until it conceives, it hasn't become sin. I think we forget about this sometimes. Just because you have a fleeting desire or a thought that comes into your head, that may not necessarily be sin. You have to you have to mull it over, you have to cogitate on it, you have to consider it, you have to let it grow, and you have to let it fester without taking action. You know, fleeting desire in your mind, you say, you know, Paul says, flee youthful lust. A desire comes in your heart, you say, no, I will not do that. I mean, I'm going to think about that, that's fine. But we let it fester. It was Martin Luther who said, you cannot keep birds from flying over your head and do what birds do. But you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Rick Warren commenting on this says, you can't keep the devil from suggesting thoughts, but you can choose not to dwell or act on them. The pattern of sin, though, is those desires are not rejected. You don't flee those desires. You don't, you don't deal with those desires, and they, 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 begin to, they begin to grow. And it says... The desire then is conceived, and it gives birth to sin. And so now there's sin in your life. And if you don't deal with that sin, that sin, verse 15, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. When we allow sin into our life because we haven't dealt with the desires in a decisive way, now that it's conceived, now the sin is growing. If you don't confess, if you don't repent, if you let that fester, it grows up into your life and it multiplies and metastasizes. And it, what, it, what does it do? It brings destruction even for a believer. Now I want to talk to two different kinds of people that may be here this morning. There are some of you in this room who are very sensitive to sin. I'm, 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 you know, and that's not bad necessarily. My fear for you when you hear a passage like this is that every time you fall into sin, what, what you lose sight of is the grace of God in the midst of that. Some of you, the minute you fall into sin, you, you look back at Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and you don't think that applies to you because you fall into sin and to temptation. And you can't even remember that one day you will be free from the presence of sin and you're almost covered with so much shame and guilt because you can't apply the gospel to your sin. You're paralyzed. That's not good. But there's others of you who go a different way. Oh, you're well aware there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're well aware, oh, I'm still on my way to heaven even though I've fallen into some sin here. And your problem is you're not taking sin seriously. You're, you're relying on grace inappropriately. Well, God's dealt with this. And God's going to deal with it one day. So what happens here? Well, you know, uh, you know, no big deal. It's a big deal. I'll never forget a friend. He was a friend of mine. He was older than me. We were in a church together. He was a deacon in the church I was a part of. Uh, he ran off with another woman. Committed adultery, ended his marriage. It was a disaster. And I remember talking to him. I said, look what you've done. 
You, your girls have been devastated. Your wife has been, has been hurt so deeply. You've hurt the reputation of Christ. This is not good for your own soul. And the comment he made to me is, God forgave David for his adultery with Bathsheba. He'll forgive me. And that is a person who has underestimated the destructiveness of sin and is now relying on grace in an inappropriate way. God gives us grace not simply to deal with the penalty of our sin. God gives us grace not simply to remove the very presence of sin in the future. God gives us grace in terms of salvation so that now, as followers of Jesus Christ, given our complete new identity in Christ, so that we would live more consistently with who we already are and who we will be, not to cheapen grace and say it doesn't matter. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have to learn to take sin seriously. We have to understand the nature of sin. It is always destructive, even for the believer. And even though it is true, when a believer, when you fall into sin, and you will, by the way, we're not going to get to sinless perfection, I did have a, a pastor one day tell me from a different tradition said he hadn't sinned in three years. Well, that was a sin. <laughs> We're not going to get to sinless perfection, right? But when we do fall into sin, we've got to take it seriously. Yes, we should remember there is therefore now no condemnation as a way to solidify our assurance in Christ. But that rightly understood will make us even more grieved for our sin because when we sin as a believer, we are acting completely inconsistent with what God has already made us to be and what God is making us to be one day. We should actually be more sensitized to our sin in one sense and yet have the resources and grace to cling to God in the midst of the sin as we repent and we confess, knowing full well what Jesus Christ has done on the cross for us. That's the second threat. We must learn to take sin seriously, particularly under trial. Now there's two protections, two provisions, two safeguards to help us. And they relate to the two threats that we just mentioned. The first protection, verse 16, James says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And in verse 17, he says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What James is saying in this protection is we find protection under trial when we consider the goodness of God. We can protect ourselves from, 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 from the, the trials that we receive, from charging God with evil or from succumbing to temptation if we can understand that every good and perfect gift is from above. It's interesting how James describes this coming down from the Father of Lights is sort of a uh, sort of an astronomical term. It's sort of reminding us that the, the the Father, Father God, has made all things, and every good gift that we get, every perfect gift that comes our way, particularly in the natural world, not simply nature, but all of the natural provisions that we receive, 
the gifts that he gives us in our life, they all come from him. And one of our problems is when we get under trial and we've got these significant difficulties and maybe temptation to sin is exacerbated, we often are so focused on the trial, the unanswered prayer in our life, maybe multiple unanswered prayers because we're experiencing multiple trials. We tend to forget the many, 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 many good and perfect gifts that God has given to us. And that impoverishes us, impoverishes us spiritually. It hurts us. I would say a good, uh, if you're in the middle of a trial right now, even if you're not, you would do well this afternoon to write down a whole list of things of all the ways God has been faithful to you in your life. Boy, we can forget God's good gifts. Oh, we do this. I, you know, if, if any of you have lived overseas in a, in a place that's been more difficult, you realize that for all the problems in this country, and there are many, there are a lot of blessings here. We, we've got a lot of first world problems compared to other places. So take a list, make a list. Write down all the ways in which God has helped you, what God has done for you, what he's helped you with. Write them down, because when you're under trial, you may need to refer to them. You may need to remind yourself, while these trials are very difficult right now, you've got to put those in context of all the other different ways that this good God has poured out so many gifts, one after another, on you. Now, I'm not trying to complain about our prayer chain. I have been talking about this at staff, so the staff will not be surprised that I say this. If you're not on the prayer chain, I encourage you to do that because we send out prayer requests. <laughs> They're given to us each week. It is interesting to note that the number of prayer requests that are on the prayer chain are this much. And the number of times somebody writes another answer to prayer is like this. So, we, got a, we, we, you know, we prayed for 357 things last year. And, and, you know, we got 17 praises. Isn't that just like us? We pray for something, God does something, and you know what we're on to? The next thing that God hasn't done, let's keep praying. Rather than saying, look at what God has done. So one protection when you're under trial is to One way to find protection under trials, you have to consider the goodness of God. You've got to count it out. One more protection. He's talked about the goodness of God, every good and perfect gift. And then verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This protection is, you find protection under trial. When we root ourselves in our gospel identity. Notice what it says here. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. In other words, God, at his initiative, brought us forth. He, he enlivened us. He gave us new life. How? Through the word of God, through the word of truth. And then we become a kind of first fruits of his creatures. 
What James is describing in a very short number of words, he's describing an aspect of our gospel of identity. He's saying that because of God's grace, God's initiative, through the word of God, you are now considered to be a first fruits of God's creatures because of what he did by grace. What does that mean? It, well, it means first fruits is, was often in the Old Testament when the first uh, part of the harvest was brought in, they would take the first fruits of the harvest and, and, and make a sacrifice to the Lord. And remind, uh, thanksgiving to God that this is the initial giving of, the, of what will become the full harvest later on. In terms of our salvation, when God brings us to himself, and he brings us into his family, it's the first installment of a whole bunch of blessings that'll, that'll happen in the next life. And another way to put it is, it's like the Spirit of God is a down payment, okay? A down payment for our future inheritance. We receive the gift of eternal life, but as we live through our life, it's just the beginning of this whole uh, sort of connection of salvation events that will occur for us of blessings that will to come. And therefore, when we view ourselves according to our gospel identity, when we realize that we are first fruits of God's creatures, God has poured out his grace on us. We are part of the harvest as he's gathering people into his family, gathering people into his kingdom. With the hope that 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 initial gathering will one day be in that new kingdom. That is who we are. And therefore, when we root ourselves in the identity of the gospel identity given to us at God's initiation, it helps us under trial because we realize we do not want to succumb to sin in the midst of our trial because we are the first fruits of his creatures. And all sin is antithetical to who we actually are and who we are becoming and who we will be. I think of Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If you try to deal with your sin apart from what Christ has done for you, it's never going to work. If you're not going to try to pursue living faithfully under trial, dealing with the temptations to sin without looking to Christ, he's the one who endured on the cross for you. He's the one who broke the power of sin in your life. You look to him, the identity that you now have because of Christ, which then begins to shape how you deal with trials, but also how you deal with temptations. Two threats. We're tempted to blame God and lose sight of his goodness. We, are tend to, we tend to underestimate the power and destruction of sin, particularly under trial. Two protections. We find protection when we consider the goodness of God. We keep that front and center. We also find protection when we root ourselves in our gospel identity in Jesus. So I want us to pray before we sing our final hymn. So please bow with me. I'm going to pray a prayer of confession.
I then will invite you to invite the congregation after I finish leading us in a time of confession. We want to speak the promise of pardon all together from James 1. The words will be on the screen. Join me in a prayer of confession. Heavenly Father, we admit to you today that we often live as though we were still dead in our trespasses and sins. You have made us alive in Christ. You've given us your Holy Spirit. Yet our slowly maturing souls dwell in sinful bodies and we continue to gratify the desires of our flesh in countless ways. When we are under pressure, we find solace in too much food, too much drink. We indulge in sinful sexual thoughts, desires, actions. We medicate ourselves by escaping reality, focusing on entertaining ourselves to distract us from our pain. Lord, we follow the course of the world around us. We give in to pressures from our friends and our circumstances instead of living in the reality, the good gift of your finished work for us. We fill ourselves up with pleasures. We use your good gifts to avoid our great need for you rather than to be thankful for every good and every perfect gift you give us. Lord, we we replace our identity as, as, as being the first fruits of your creatures, as being your children, as being your heirs. And we put on other identities. Identity is given to us at work. Identity is given to us at school or in our academic pursuits or we make our athletics or our academics the, the real identity in our life. Lord, forgive us. Help us to take sin seriously, but also help us to take your grace seriously simultaneously. Give us true grief for our sin and sweet repentance. And Lord, then draw us to you to find cleansing, healing, and joy in our salvation. In your great name we pray. Amen.